Are you ready for me to like really blow your mind now? I don't guess I have much of a choice, do I? Nah, you don't. Okay, shoot. Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Knoxville County, Mississippi was home to 12,604 people in 1990. The county is 700 square miles and located along the state's eastern border with Alabama, just above the middle of the state. The town of Brooksville is located within Knoxby County and in 1990 had just under 1,100 people living there. Although a majority of the state was white in 1990, Knoxby County and Brooksville's population were both 68% black. And among those living in Brooksville at the time was a little girl named Courtney Smith. She was three years old and absolutely adorable. Um, typically, this is where I'd tell you about her life, who she was, and what made her unique. But as you can imagine, there just aren't a lot of details for us to share about Courtney because she'd only lived for three years. As a little girl, she should have had her whole life ahead of her. But since we're talking about her, my guess is that wasn't the case. In the dark, early morning hours of September 15, 1990, Courtney was sleeping in a room she shared with her two sisters. One was older, and she was about five or six at the time. Different sources list her at each of those ages. And her other sister was still just a baby, only a year old. Under the covered darkness, a man came into the three girls' room and took Courtney. But there was a witness. Courtney's older sister saw the man who came into their room. Courtney and her older sister weren't just in the same room. They actually shared a bed, too. This man had taken Courtney from the same bed while her older sister laid beside her. According to the Mississippi Supreme Court's retelling of the facts, she tried to wake her Uncle Tony, who was sleeping in the next room, to tell him what had happened, that somebody had taken Courtney, but he didn't wake up. When Courtney's mother arrived home the next morning and found Courtney missing, she and others began to search. And the police were finally called in later that evening, around 8 p.m., and an official search began. Courtney was discovered the following morning. She had been sexually assaulted and murdered. Her body was in a pond less than 100 yards from her house. Less than two years after Courtney was murdered, another little girl was abducted. Only three miles separated the two girls' homes. In the early morning hours of May 3rd, 1992, Christine Jackson, the three-year-old daughter of Gloria Jackson, was taken from her house. A man named Kennedy Brewer was Gloria's boyfriend, and he was the father of two of her other children and was babysitting all three kids that night. Two days after Christine disappeared, her body was found in a creek about 500 yards from her house. She had been raped and murdered before her body was discarded in the water. Police reported no signs of forced entry. However, there was a broken window near where Christine slept. All right, let me make sure I'm tracking because these facts are awful and I keep trying to think about anything that isn't what you're saying when you're talking about what happened to these little girls. Basically, there were two girls who were the same age, living a few miles apart, who were sexually assaulted and murdered and then dumped in water. And these two crimes were committed a couple years apart. Is that about right? Yeah, you've got it. So... Uh, given all that, and it is heavy, and I don't like talking about it, and we're not going to get into the details any more than we have to, uh, do you have any overall thoughts about these two crimes? Any sort of gut reaction? Uh, disgusting, disturbing, a whole bunch of other ings that are just gross, but sounds like there's some real creepy bag of shit out there. That's fair. Uh, let, let's go ahead and talk about the investigations into these murders. Now, turning back to Courtney's case, 
The police immediately started looking into possible suspects. For my research of these cases, uh, lawyers who've worked for the defense have said that uh, there in that area and during that time frame, the police basically would uh, get anybody who lived nearby or had any sort of interaction or relation to the victim and bring them in, question them, and collect samples to be forensically compared to evidence from the crime scene of the victim. I mean, I'm all for catching the bad guy in this case, but isn't there kind of some constitutional issue with just sort of rounding people up, hauling them in, questioning them? Swabbing them and all that. As as any good lawyer would say, it depends. Good Lord, typical lawyer answer. Seriously, though, if the police ask people to answer questions and submit samples or to come in for questioning, the people, they, they could voluntarily submit. As long as they weren't forced or improperly coerced, then it's probably not offensive to the Constitution. Here, this sounds a, a bit more akin to an actual roundup where these people were you know, arrested or at least probably thought they were under arrest. Now, I don't have details on that. So it's possible that police got warrants or maybe they arrested these guys on other legitimate charges. And then while they had them, asked them questions about what happened here and, you know, got them to volunteer samples and things like that. I just don't have those details. But uh, it's interesting the way that they seem to kind of cast a wide net and just sort of see what happens as opposed to, you know, really reviewing the evidence, taking a hard look at it, and then, and then seeing what the evidence said. Now, out of these suspects, one started to stand out, a man named Justin Johnson. His ex-wife and son lived next to the Smith residence, and he had actually been inside the Smith house on the day of Courtney's abduction. Understandably, investigators wanted to find out whether Courtney's older sister could provide them with any information about the man who kidnapped and murdered Courtney. Remember, her sister was in the bed with her and, and apparently woke up enough that, uh, you know, she, she saw something or at least had an idea that she was, she was taken. But this is where it starts to just get a little interesting. There was a local kids TV show called Fun Time that was hosted by a man whose name on the show was Uncle Bunky. Now, Uncle Bunky would draw animals and entertain children on the show. And in addition to entertaining them, he also liked to kind of moonlight by helping out the police, interviewing children and, and doing sketches of crime scenes and things like that. So the police brought in this child whisperer, Uncle Bunky, to question Courtney's sister. Hold on, hold on. So the police call in this guy named Uncle Bunky, who's like some generic brand Mr. Rogers, to come down to the police station to interview a five-year-old girl about her little sister getting snatched out of their room in the middle of the night and... I'm guessing he has zero psychological training or interview techniques or anything like that. Yeah. So he's not a social worker or a psychologist or a, uh, yeah, you, you would be absolutely correct. And as you could imagine, Uncle Bunky had no trouble talking with this little girl because, you know, he hosts a kid's TV show. Uh, but from an investigative standpoint, uh, the interview is not great. And you might be wondering how I know that. Well, it was recorded and you can listen to it. Uncle Bunky was clearly leading Ashley in his questioning. I don't get the impression that he did this nefariously or even intentionally. I don't think he meant to. Uh, it seems that Uncle Bunky was uh, well-intentioned and just trying to help law enforcement find Courtney's killer. Oh, yeah. That uh, path to hell being all paved with good intentions. That's what they say. And if you've ever spent any time talking to a five-year-old, you likely know how their imaginations are and how easy it can be for them to say things that just aren't true. Oh, yeah. Like when you were five and told people at church that Grammy locked you in a closet? Exactly. 
I was never locked in a closet. I just like to make up stories. Yeah, we don't even have locking closets. Details, man, details. That's why we have the podcast. Now, Courtney's sister claimed she saw a man come into the bedroom that night with a quarter in his ear. So, Bunky suggested to her that the quarter was an earring. And you know what the little girl did? Oh, dear Lord. I mean, there's so many other ways to go about that. I'm going to guess that she said... Oh, yeah, it was an earring when it would have been a lot better for him to say something. And Uncle Bunky didn't know, but say something like, oh, tell me about the quarter and maybe find out if it's an earring. But I'm guessing she was just like, oh, yeah, it was an earring. That's it. That is exactly what happened. And what's next is worse. Police use this fact that the man had a quarter in his ear, which must be an earring to help them decide that a man named LaVon Brooks was the perp because he had an earring. Oh, wait a minute. There's a lot of people with earrings. And I mean, I can sort of see where they got sideways on this, which is a reason why when you interview kids, you have trained people do that and not just Uncle Stinky or whatever the hell it was. But (laughs) did they have some other evidence porting them, pointing them in the direction of LaVon or... Just the- that's a that's a fair question. Uh, well, let me let me throw this out there and see if it you know how this makes you feel. Um, she, the sister, was interviewed ten days after Courtney was kidnapped and murdered, and she also offered that the man had on a Halloween mask, escaped in either an airplane or a spaceship, and said, "No, no, 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 I've got your sister." When he left in his airplane. Oh, I see. And. Look, I'm not picking on this kid. She's five and there's a lot of imagination going on. But this is exactly why we don't take the things that she says or been led to say and write that down in ink and say, aha, this is what we're looking for. A guy with an earring and a Halloween mask uh, in an airplane that's singing. No, 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 no. Come on, dude. Yeah. So in addition to all that, right, the mask, the quarter, the singing, the spaceship. Courtney's sister also said that the man's name was Trevon. From this, the investigators picked out what they thought the truth was as opposed to the little girl's imagination. So the quarter became that earring, and Trevon really meant LaVon, as in LaVon Brooks. Now, LaVon was a friend who had dated Courtney's mother in the past, and he also wore an earring. Police now turned their attention from Justin Johnson, who was the main suspect to LaVon, as their prime guy. Now, they showed Courtney's sister a photo array, and she identified LaVon as the man who snuck into her room in the middle of the night and took Courtney. That was it. The investigators were now locked in on LaVon Brooks as Courtney's killer. There was one problem with the investigator's new suspect. He had what seemed to be a pretty decent alibi. LaVon worked at a club in nearby Macon, Mississippi. It's only about a 10-minute drive south from Brooksville on Route 45. He had been working late that night at the club, like really late. Based on accounts from others on how late he had worked, the police determined that he essentially got off work, went straight to Courtney's house, kidnapped her, sexually assaulted her, dumped her body in the pond in the nearby house. All right, as much as I don't want to do this, let's talk about the crime scene evidence in Courtney's case. I hate cases that involve kids. You know this. I don't know why you keep finding them. And folks listening at home, I guess this is probably going to be awful. So here's your trigger warning. Yeah. So Sergeant Ernest Eichelberger, the chief investigator for Knoxville County Sheriff's Department, was the lead investigator on, on the case. And he testified that Courtney's body showed bleeding from her head and her vaginal area. The medical examiner, Dr. Stephen Hain, testified the autopsy showed Courtney died by drowning. 
he testified that bruises on Courtney's head were probably from a fist. He also testified that he found evidence that she had been sexually assaulted while she was still alive. Dr. Hain further testified that he found bite marks on Courtney's wrist. He brought in a forensic odontologist, Dr. Michael West, to determine or to examine the bite marks. And West determined that the marks on the victim's body were indeed from human bites. And he initially took dental impression samples from 12 possible suspects, including Justin Johnson's, but not LaVon Brooks. After Courtney ID'd LaVon, that same day, Dr. West took a sample of Brooks' teeth at the local jail. And Dr. West gave extensive testimony at LaVon's trial regarding the test that he conducted in reaching the conclusion that Brooks had made the bite marks. West testified that two of Brooks's teeth matched the marks on the victim's body. Specifically, he claimed that Brooks made the marks with his two top front teeth. Brooks' expert at trial, Dr. Harry Mincer, testified that he could not say with medical certainty that Brooks made the bite marks, nor could he exclude Brooks as the biter. I've got so many questions, but it seems like you've just kind of given us a sampling of the testimony from the trial. So before I get ahead of myself or ahead of you, tell me what else we've got here. So LaVon pled not guilty and exercised his right to a jury trial in January of 1992. Okay, so we're we're in sort of like the pre-DNA era, and you got to think about where science is, you know, what, 30 years ago. The state's case really only consisted of what we've already discussed. Courtney's sister, despite being a young child, was actually called to testify, and she said that she saw Brooks abduct her sister. But as you might imagine, her testimony had several contradictions. The state was really able to make its case through the bite mark evidence presented by Dr. West, who testified that, quote, it could be no one but LaVon Brooks that bit this girl's arm. LaVon's attorneys presented his alibi to the jury that he had been working at the club in Macon that night, and they didn't have an opportunity to commit the crime based on the timing. The defense also challenged Dr. West's credentials and findings, but after deliberating for about nine hours, the jury convicted Brooks of capital murder. They found him guilty of murdering Courtney, and he was sentenced to life in prison. I don't think they got the right guy, and I am just horrified by the, uh, it could be no one but LeVon Brooks that bit this girl's arm. That's just a horrible statement. It wasn't too long into using bite mark evidence that we figured out that the best it could be used for was maybe to exclude, and now that's all come into question. So the thought that somebody claiming to be an expert sitting on the stand saying that man's mouth made that mark just yeah we will uh, we'll dive into dr west toward the end or later on but i was going to ask any any thoughts you had about the fact that courtney's sister actually testified you know it's one thing to use her uh from an investigative standpoint but to put uh, at this point you know she's probably what six or seven years old, uh, a six or seven year old on the witness stand during a trial and ask questions about that. And any thoughts about that? Well, I think for the most part, it's probably absolutely pointless. The only reason I can imagine putting the little girl on the stand as a witness like that is if you have the rare circumstance where from the get go, she was absolutely convinced and solid in whatever she's testifying to. And that's not the case here. And this is clearly imagination but even in even in that situation i mean only if 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 she's been solid and remembers and knows and 
and is completely unshakable that you're certain it's not imagination going on. But at this point, you know, the trial's a year after the crime or whatever. She's had a story pulled out of her and told this story. And she's a kid. She's not lying to be malicious. She's telling the grown-ups what they want to hear, especially uh, Uncle Bunky, who's a friend or whatever in her eyes, sort of following that lead wherever, wherever it goes, intentionally or not. So now what she's testifying to is just the versions that have been said either by her or someone else over the, the year that's passed. It's completely useless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I also just think, you know, I, it's hard for anybody to get on a witness stand. It's not a fun thing. Um, and so to have a child testify in a trial like that about something so, I mean, my gosh, this little girl had her sister taken from her room, from her bed right next to her and, and had these horrible things done to her. And then you're going to, you know, get her to testify at the trial, uh, that, that's going to have an impact on her. You know, that's going to be a memory that's with her for probably the rest of her life. So I, well, I, heck yeah. I personally was not a fan that the prosecution would do that, that there's I, in my review of the case, I don't see any reason why they needed to call her. I mean, they could have got all the evidence in, uh, related to, to her in other ways. There was no need to do that. So I just thought it was, um, more of a spectacle kind of thing. And I, frankly, I think that's kind of an irresponsible move and just, uh, I, I don't like it at all. Well, sure. Yeah. They're going to put this innocent little girl up on the stand who the jury is just going to, their heartstrings are going to be pulled. And if this little girl is saying that's the man that did it, who snuck in my room that night and took my sister, I, it's going to be kind of believable unless you know, like the prosecutor should have known and the detective should have known that this is not legit and not something that should be listened to. And then what's the defense going to do? They're going to beat up that witness. <laughs> no, right. right. They can't. So what you're saying is if they had had a, like a detective testify that, well, we interviewed the sister and uh, that's what led us to this person, that person, then I guess it would be up to the defense if they wanted to call the sister, which they probably wouldn't have, but they'd have been much better off to call some kind of, child psychologist or forensic interview expert or something to say, that's very nice and God bless the little girl and all she's been through, but you can't listen to that. Yeah. I mean, exactly. That's exactly how I see it. So switching gears from Courtney's case to Christine's, I, I want to shore up the timeline a bit. Christine is abducted and murdered just four months after LaVon was convicted. And remember, Christine was another three-year-old girl living in the same town who was also abducted, raped, and killed. The two cases are, are startlingly similar. Both girls were taken from their homes at night. Both girls were sexually assaulted. Both girls were found in some form of water, body of water. And the similarities just continue from there. The police did their usual roundup, but they focused on Christine's mom's boyfriend, Kennedy Brewer. Now, looking at him, was it was understandable in a sense. He was in the house taking care of Christine and her siblings the night that she went missing. So Kennedy you know, had no alibi because he was there with the kids. And, and, and unlike in Courtney's case, there were no witnesses in this case. There was no obvious explanation for how or why this little girl was taken in the middle of the night without anybody noticing. So investigators were suspicious of Kennedy pretty much from, you know, the beginning of the investigation. 
Dr. Stephen Hain, the same Dr. Hain in Courtney's case, conducted Christine's autopsy. He said he found bite marks on her body too. Dr. West, yeah, the same one, uh, was also called in to analyze the bite marks and confirmed that the marks were from a human bite. And he also determined that they came from Kennedy. Based on this evidence, Kennedy was convicted in 1995 and sentenced to death. So none of these investigators or prosecutors stopped for a minute and thought maybe it was like a little much of a coincidence that these two crimes are damn near identical. Did they think this tiny town in Mississippi all of a sudden just had a run on kidnapping, raping, and murdering little girls? I mean, I get the coincidences do happen sometimes, but damn, this sounds like the same exact crime was committed again and therefore probably the same person. Yeah, so I've seen some uh, interview footage where people working for the state prosecution team, lawyers, investigators, whatever, have said that they, they didn't ever think that the same guy did both because they put the guy who did the first crime in prison. Oh, good Lord. Kennedy continued asserting his innocence from behind bars even after he was convicted. And in 2001, he got the first real break in his case. He had written to the Innocence Project up in New York, and they agreed to get involved. As an aside, the expertise resources, resources I can't talk today, and frankly, the sheer just doggedness that the Innocence Project brings to a case is hard to overstate. Are you ready for me to like really blow your mind now? I don't guess I have much of a choice, do I? No, you don't. Okay, shoot. Kennedy was convicted based upon Dr. West's bite mark analysis and the fact that he was in the house. That was literally all they had. Oh, it's so horrible. But if you've got an expert who says, hey, this guy's teeth bit this little girl and there's no explanation for that. It, I mean, I guess to the jury, it's pretty damning evidence. Yeah, that's fair. But what if I told you that investigators did a rape kit on Christine and recovered semen and that it excluded Kennedy? Well, shit, that would be important information to know. The prosecution conducted further testing on two of Kennedy's friends and many of his relatives, but no subsequent effort was made to identify the actual perpetrator. The following year, Kennedy's conviction was vacated, and he then was moved from death row in Mississippi to pretrial detention. What do you mean pretrial detention? They had DNA that it, excluding him. His conviction was vacated. Why wasn't he sent home with an apology and a check? Yeah, well, so in 2007, according to Peter Neufeld, who was the director of the Innocence Project at that time, Kennedy's case was the first time prosecutors sought a new capital murder trial after a conviction was overturned by DNA evidence. So they have DNA that this guy didn't do it, and they still trying to deep fry his ass. I, yeah, I'm not done. I don't know if I even want to know at this point. Well, remember, we're in a small county. The prosecutor was the same man in both cases, and he happened to be around not only for Kennedy's original conviction, but also for this plan to retry him despite the new DNA results. A New York Times article in 2007 sums up the situation with the prosecution and Kennedy's case fairly well. It said, quote, the prosecutors are not convinced of the innocence of Mr. Brewer, a black labeler who is mildly, and this is my edit, I'm going to say mentally impaired instead of the word they used. And then it goes on to say, Forrest Allgood, the district attorney who first tried the case, said his theory then was that Mr. Brewer, who was the boyfriend of the victim's mother, acted alone. 
at the trial, Mr. Allgood argued that the couple's bedroom was, quote, the killing field. Although traces of human blood were found there, they were so small they couldn't be tested. His view has changed. Now again, he says, I perceive that Kennedy Brewer assisted someone else in the killing of the child. Whether he actually penetrated that child or not functionally doesn't make any difference if he was aiding, assisting, and encouraging in her death. Okay, well, this is a problem because this is shit they should have had figured out before they ever took him to trial in the first place. So first you're saying, oh, he did it all by himself. And now you're saying, well, this DNA, all it proves is that somebody else sexually assaulted this child. And I, I agree. Evidence of a sexual assault is not necessarily evidence of a murder, although in the case of a three-year-old child, in these circumstances, pretty good clue that it might be the same person. Did you say this dude's name as prosecutor is Forrest Allgood? Is that for real? Yeah, that's for real. Uh, Wow. (laughs) Yeah. The prosecution didn't seem to be in any kind of a hurry to figure out whose DNA actually matched the semen recovered from the rape kit. Meanwhile, Kennedy waited for his new trial, and he waited and waited the prosecution and see was, there's another thing if so you've got this other dna and you say all right well that that just proves that someone else was you know did the sexual assault and yet this guy actually was involved in the killing or encouraged the killing or whatever he's still just as responsible uh, one don't we want to find out exactly who was responsible for that sexual assault number one if nothing else they're probably just as guilty as this guy but two Find out who they are and how they fit to Kennedy so that you can put your whole picture together. If this is a friend or a partner in crime or something, it'll make sense. And what if it's somebody that has absolutely no link to Kennedy whatsoever? Then you might have to go, hmm, maybe Kennedy wasn't involved. I don't know. Sorry. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think this is similar to what we saw in the very first episode we did in Dorothy Donovan's, this is what happens when investigators, prosecutors, when instead of following wherever the evidence takes them, they develop a theory based on some portion of evidence or whatever. And then they just do everything they can to prove up the theory that they have decided on. Uh, and, and that's the only thing that explains this kind of motivation. And, and it makes me think of the Dorothy Donovan case because you know, even once they caught the guy who did it, then they were, you know, well, he paid you, right? Or he was involved, right? He asked you to do it, right? And the guy's like, no, dude, I was out of my mind on crack and I just did it. And right. I mean, but at least in that case, when they find the guy based on DNA and the palm print and they actually investigate and find this guy has zero connection to Charles, the person we think did it, maybe Charles really wasn't involved. But it doesn't yeah. sound like that was what was going on here at all. No, not exactly. So the prosecution was intending to retry Brewer for capital murder. But for five years, the case languished without moving to trial. And so Kennedy was just waiting to be retried all that time. And finally, in 2007, there was a conflict of interest in the Noxabee County District Attorney's Office that led to a special prosecutor being appointed. The new DA made the decision not to seek the death penalty and agreed not to oppose bail. So again, that's interesting, right? Because all along you've got Mr. Allgood, who is, you know, just hell bent on Kennedy retrying him and uh, all this stuff and, and wants him to be locked up the whole time. 
this new special prosecutor comes in and, and all of a sudden it's a, you know, it's a new thing, right? We're not going to seek the death penalty. Oh, and hey, we don't have any issue with bail. So Kennedy's released in August 2007, but he was on bond still with this retrial looming over his head. While the state was gearing up to retry Kennedy, the Innocence Project asked the Mississippi Attorney General's office to intervene in the reinvestigation of the case. So new DNA testing was finally performed, and it led to the implication of another man as the real perpetrator. Okay, look, I know we're all anxious to hear who that DNA belonged to, but we've got to cut this episode right here. I may have gotten a little overzealous with the pre-episode mystery snacks, and now there's a situation. Oh, got a roll, come back for the next episode, find out whose DNA that was and how this story concludes. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.